This is Beekeeper Confidential, a show about the curious lives of bees and their beekeepers. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. This interview was months in the making. I made my first request for an interview via Instagram while at a cocktail party. Let's just say I was feeling courageous. I officially booked it in February and then recorded it from my apiary on May 6th. On the day of the interview, I was minutes away from receiving our guest's phone call when a swarm call came in. I didn't answer it, obviously, but they also sent a text with photos that I received during the interview, and it was a prime swarm right in my neighborhood, right near a patch of known bee trees hanging at eye level. Oh my God. So not only did I have an epic conversation with our guest, I also got to go and collect an epic swarm right afterwards. It was a totally amazing day. I cannot tell you how excited I am to share this interview with you. He's a scientist who shocked the bee world when he tested and proved what Varroa mites are really pigging out on. Meet the talented, the brilliant singing scientist, Dr. Samuel Ramsey. Hello. Hey, Mandy. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Um, First of all, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I'm just a little bee girl with a podcast, but your name comes up (laughs) with my guests a lot. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. And I'm kind of a fangirl, too. So um, (laughs) (laughs) you seem like you're really a lot of fun and a really happy and cheerful person. And I love your singing. And I, uh-huh. I ha- kind of imagine you like working in the lab, like singing about all the stuff you're doing. <laughs> and then everybody else is like backup dancers, backup singers. <laughs> you know, uh, most of the time that I spend in the lab, I do spend singing, but not singing about what I'm doing. Just <laughs> random songs that pop into my head from like 20 years ago. And I wonder how they got there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's dive right in. Your research on the Varroa mite is kind of earth-shattering news in in the bee industry, and it changes the way that we approach Varroa mite. Mm -hmm. When you first came up with the idea to test this, did you have any idea that you would make such an important discovery? Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) And even now, I'm still... Um, gobsmacked by how everything came around to be what it is, because um, I originally did not plan on studying Varroa. Uh, I entered graduate school studying parasites of stink bugs. So think about how far away this project is from what I started with. <laughs> but uh, life has a way of, of you know, bringing things back around to where they should be, and the stink bugs just weren't where I was supposed to be. Um, um, I ended up in Dennis Van Engelsdorp's lab, um, but I still really wanted to study some sort of parasite-host interaction. And so he said, there's some weird things going on with Varroa. Um, why don't you look into this parasite and see what you, you think of this? And 
um, I jumped in and the rest is history. Nothing has been more fascinating to me than uh, how weird this relationship is between this parasite and host. (laughs) And so now, like, I think of you like you're the quester that is like saving the world you've gone on this quest and you've i think you've really found a chink in the armor of this big boss enemy of the video game you know oh oh i hope so and you're speaking my language when you're speaking the language of video games i've played a lot in my day Um, all right so which video game character are you Ooh! oh my gosh this is this is a you're a hard-hitting interviewer you know that (laughs) Uh, let me think which video game character am i Oh, that is a tough one because I love so many. We can always uh, circle back to that. We'll have to circle back to that. Okay. Um, it's probably going to end up being a Final Fantasy character. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I'm thinking yeah. like we're in this video game and the Varroa Mai is like the boss enemy. <laughs> but then you beat the boss enemy and then you find out that there's an even bigger boss enemy and that's the Tropolelapse Might. Tell us about yes. that. Yes. So Tropolelaps mercedesi is the Tropolelaps mite that people should really be considering as you know the, the potential for the next big problem with these. Um, this mite is about a third the size of Varroa, but like three times as gnarly. They are so much more frightening than Varroa, in my opinion. Um, they move very quickly. They just run all around, darting back and forth on the frames uh, in colonies. And they, they kill colonies so much faster than Varroa. Uh, I mean, you can, from the moment that a colony gets infected with Varroa, there's a clock winding down. But mm-hmm. it's a clock that's on a matter of years. Like, you know, you can go a good two years with a, a mite infestation uh, until it really ramps up and destroys the colony. But usually it starts fairly small. Mm-hmm. With tropolelapse, within the same season that you get them, that colony is pretty much destined for failure. And wow. um, the fact that this parasite is uh, moving outside of its original geographic range from Southeast Asia. Uh, it's, it's emerged and, and found its way to a lot of different countries and is um, clearly making its way to the, the Middle East. And I'm very concerned about where it's uh, going to go from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, this particular parasite has also been expanding its host range. So it's expanded its geographic distribution, but it's also found other hosts that it can feed on, mm. uh, and they are not all honeybees. Um, they've been found in with uh, associated with carpenter bees, which is crazy oh. to me. Oh. So, so yeah. what does the tropolelapse might need to reproduce? I mean, we know Varroa <laughs> reproduces in the brood, but what's what's the mechanism for the tropolelapse mite? How are they gaining traction? So the tropolelapse mite is... <sighs> It is an organism that we have not spent nearly enough time studying. Please hear me when I say this. Mm-hmm. We don't know nearly enough about this organism. And this, the primary reason why I'm heading over to Southeast Asia for a year. Um, so from May of this year to May of next year, I'll be over there studying this organism and trying to learn everything about it that we can learn because we don't even know what they're eating. Um, oh my God. We don't know. Yeah. When they <sighs> attach themselves to, to bees, we're not sure what tissue they're interested in. Very similar to... Varroa, but at least with Varroa, we thought we knew what they were feeding on. We don't even think we know what tropolelaps are feeding on, and we don't know what stimulates reproduction in them. So if there's a set of molecules that gets the whole reproductive processes, a set of reproductive processes going, we don't even know what's in target. We don't know what to look at. 
Um, we don't know what chemicals are best at controlling them. We don't know what treatment methods will keep them under control. It's concerning. Wow. And you have a GoFundMe campaign mm-hmm. to help fund this research. And I encourage mm-hmm. everybody listening today to donate whatever you can because this is important and is a beekeeper. is a, This can affect me. <laughs> yes. It can affect my bees. And mm-hmm. I don't want that to happen. <laughs> well thanks mandy i appreciate that Uh, i'll put a link to it in the show notes so people can click on it and then click donate Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah 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 if you go to gofundme and uh, gofundme slash fund honeybee research mine comes up so uh, if you you want to click the donate button uh, it would be very helpful how do you design a research project like this where so little is known about how they operate. Oh, that's the fun part. Okay, so you were, <laughs> you were talking about how with, uh, with Varroa, this, this crazy um, discovery comes, comes about. And I was not expecting a crazy discovery with Varroa, but this did turn out to be something really fundamental to this organism. The reason why I didn't expect that is because we've been studying Varroa forever, for decades and decades and decades. Uh, researchers have been putting attention to this organism, and we've learned a lot about it. Varroa is not a creature that we knew little about until uh, I got onto the scene. I was just mm-hmm. able to tack on a new set of, uh, of facts to what we were learning about this creature. With Tropolalaps, it's exactly the opposite. We know very little about this organism, and so that just creates this totally open field uh, where I can just dash through and ask whatever questions that I want to. And the fun part about it is, whatever I discover will be novel. And so uh, it kind of leaves things in a, a, really, uh, a really cool space where I don't have to worry that the project that I'm undertaking might not turn up something that'll be interesting. Mm-hmm. Whatever comes up will be interesting. Wow. Well, the things that you've discovered about Varroa, do you think oh, that's going oh. to... Oh, yes? Bug catcher from Pokemon. <gasps> yes! Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, I got to I got to mm-hmm. like hop into Photoshop and see if I could do some mashup. <laughs> I would love to see that if you make that work by the way. Okay, cool. So, now that we know what we do about Varroa, do you think we could make better treatments based on what we know about them feeding off of the fat bodies? Hmm. Yes. Yes, I do. Um, I think that so every every little piece of knowledge that gets added to the system is like a piece in a puzzle that helps us better resolve what the image is that we're looking at. And so with Varroa, we found out that there was a piece in the wrong place and we've moved it to a new place. And now the image that we're looking at is a little bit clearer than it was before. Um, that that movement of, of one piece um, isn't going to fix the entire situation. It's not going to allow us to, uh, to just easily fix things, but it points us in the right direction, and it also mm-hmm. helps move us away from uh, directions that were dead ends. So there were researchers, um, there were research projects based on the idea that Varroa was feeding on the bee's blood, where they attempted to put some sort of miticide in the bee's blood uh, so that when the mite fed on the bee, it would be poisoned by feeding on the bee's blood. The problem uh, is that the fat body and the blood have the exact opposite chemistry. And so something that accumulates in the blood 
won't usually accumulate in the fat body and vice versa. Uh, and so now that we are aware of why those experiments failed, uh, we can potentially use that to reorient our thinking and go in a different direction this time around. So there are researchers who are already working on trying to adapt some of those miticides to the fat body, um, but it's also really important for us to consider what set of nutrition the mites are getting from the fat body. Mm. If we can disrupt their ability to get those nutrients from the fat body, then we can disrupt essential processes that the mites have to go through. There was recently a paper, um, uh, ooh, who is the author on I think it's Benjamin Conlon and, um, and John Kefis. Uh, but it is a really fascinating paper because it talks about how Varroa are uh, feeding on the bees and there is uh, a hormone in the bee's body that the mites appear to be using to stimulate, um, to stimulate reproduction in their own bodies. What? And the, yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting because that specific hormone uh, is... Um, almost certain is produced by the fat body because the fat body is what produces most of the hormones in the bee's Whoa. body. Yeah. And so uh, us knowing things like that, the hormone is called a dyson, by the way, um, w with us knowing things like that, uh, it's really, really, really helpful for us because if we want to disrupt the reproductive process, we know that a dyson, that hormone, uh, is essential to getting those those wheels turning. And if we can mess with the mites' ability to pick up the ichthyosome from the bees, then we can mess up the process of them reproducing. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I'm a little bit mind-blown. I mean, what purpose do varroa mites have <laughs> other than just decimating honeybee colonies? <laughs> so uh, th that is a great question because I believe that all organisms serve some sort of purpose. Um, ecologically, everything fits together into this really fascinating chain. Uh, everyone has their niche. Yeah. Everything works together. With Varroa, it might look like they are the exception to that rule, and that would not be accurate. <laughs> we are simply thinking about it the wrong way. We have created an extremely unnatural situation, and as a result, we have created a parasite that decimates honeybees um, when it did not exist in the wild in that way. Mm. Um, so um, let me put it to you this way. Under normal circumstances, honeybees don't like to have their colonies very close to each other. Um, and so in the wild, when they're doing their little honeybee democracy thing, a la Tom yeah. Seeley, <laughs> um, <laughs> when they're scouting and figuring out where are we going to put our new home, how are we going to do this, uh, they will find if there are other colonies in the vicinity and within a, I believe it's a three kilometer radius, if there's a close honeybee colony nearby, they will go farther away to ensure that they're not really close to each other. Mm -hmm. And that relates to uh, the distance that a normal bee will travel when, um, uh, when, when its own colony collapses. Uh, and it needs to find some new space to live out its usefulness until it eventually dies. Oh, wow. Well, well, these, the reason why they want to be far enough away from each other so that um, a, a bee from a collapsing colony can't find theirs, because collapsing colonies are usually collapsing because of some sort of disease, mm -hmm. oftentimes because of a parasite like Varroa. And you want to punish a parasite that kills your colony. So if you take me down, you're going down with me. And so 
under those circumstances, because the bees in natural settings have kept their colonies so far apart, the genes that are related to virulence usually don't rise up to high levels in a natural population of Varroa. They get weeded out um, because those mites end up killing themselves by killing the colony. Oh. However, we've put the mites in a situation where they are rewarded by destroying the colony that they're in because then they are ferried off to a colony right next to them or uh, just a, a, a half a mile down the road, and they're able to continue uh, reproducing and distributing their population far and wide. Mm. And so for urban beekeepers like myself, what is our best bet to help the problem, not hurt the problem, mm. not make it worse? Mm. Um, so I know that there is quite a debate going on right now between the <laughs> treatment beekeepers and the non-treatment beekeepers. Yeah. So before I say what I'm going to say, I'd like to preface this by saying uh, I don't think things should be so contentious. Mm -hmm. um, one reason why they shouldn't be so contentious is because every single one of us is on the same side. I have yes. never met a beekeeper who has ever said, you know, I really want my bees dead. And uh, <laughs> if, you think, if you think about the amount of money that we put into this, like my, um, I just, Bought my dad a bunch of equipment. He just uh, became a beekeeper. Super oh, proud of him. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so, um, and just realizing how expensive all of this stuff is. Oh, yeah. As a beekeeper, you get really invested in all of this. Yes. Like, I had help uh, when I got started. I got started at a university, and there's always been equipment lying around. So this is my first time having to actually start up from scratch and buy everything. Oh, and how so, much did you spend? Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say we got some help. Uh, some good friends of ours uh, actually donated some equipment oh, to us, sweet. and um, Be Smart uh, Designs actually uh, donated some hive stands and some feeders. So that was really nice of them. But buying all these boxes, um, buying. Uh, all of the, the different equipment, the starter kit, a uh, couple of uh, extra bee suits for my mom and my sister want to go out there. Uh, it was well over $1,500 for yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, there's, there's an entrance fee into this process that causes Absolutely. everyone to be pretty invested, you know? Yeah. And, and as a result of that, uh, it is crazy to me sometimes to listen to uh, beekeepers talk about other beekeepers as if they desire to kill their bees. Yeah. Um, when people do uh, make decisions that are um, ill-informed and ill-advised, and oftentimes that's because any perspective that exists in the world can be uh, supported by ridiculous stuff on the internet. And so, yes. uh, yeah, <laughs> it is very easy to kill your bees with Facebook because there are so many Facebook groups that are peddling terrible information about yeah. how to protect your bees, and people listen to it. But it's not that those people want to kill their bees. It's often that they are uh, grossly misinformed. Um, now, when it comes to this debate of whether you should treat your bees or not treat your bees, for us to think that the people who uh, aren't treating their bees or who are treating their bees, the reason why they're doing it is because they don't care about their bees and they want their bees dead, that immediately causes us to look at people the wrong way mm -hmm. uh, and to then demonize their perspective and never listen to their side of things. Um, everybody has the same goal in mind. We want there to be a day where we never have to put any more chemicals into a honeybee colony. 
We want things taken back to what they used to be. There was a time where you could put a box out there and those bees would take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And now those days are over. Uh, you can, there was a time where you could be a bee haver. Now that we've got Varroa and all these other parasites, you have to be a beekeeper. Mm -hmm. And so um, we, I, I know based on um, what I have seen uh, with my own eyes, what I've seen in my own operations, what I've seen at the University of Maryland, the USDA, and from the, uh, the surveys that the Bee Informed Partnership does every year, mm -hmm. individuals who treat their colonies lose substantially fewer colonies than individuals who do not. And the reason why that's important to the question that you asked earlier about what can we do um, to, 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 uh, to help this situation rather than hurt this situation, well, what we can do, we can reduce the populations of these mites uh, artificially. We can uh, intervene in these colonies, and our intervention can keep these mites from building up to levels that are ridiculously damaging but it also keeps these mites from developing the sets of genes that make them more and more and more virulent. Mm -hmm. It also keeps these mites from accumulating all of these extra viruses that make them more and more and more virulent. We found mites with multiple different viruses in them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's frightening because the bees might be able to deal with a little bit of deformed wing virus, but deformed wing virus, black queen cell virus, Lake Sinai virus, all these other viruses all lumped together in the same mite, then transmitting it to the bee, no matter how healthy that bee is, no matter how healthy that colony is, their immune system is going to be overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So when we allow a mite in one colony to overcome that colony, absorb the viruses in that colony, and then move to the next colony, overcome that colony, absorb the viruses in that colony, and then move to the next one, we're accumulating not just a huge amount of viruses, but the genes that make that mite so virulent are being passed on to greater and greater numbers of mites as this generation widens and widens. Oh. When we intervene in that, yeah, exactly. When we intervene in that situation and we reduce those um, populations of the mites artificially, uh, we are able to take a crack at um, getting rid of those virulence genes uh, in that population. And while we're never going to fully get rid of these genes, we can at least keep them from being the primary set of genes in the U.S. Mm -hmm. When Varroa first arrived, it, uh, they're, they're, they were not nearly as virulent as they are now. And we can tell this based on, so they arrived in 1987. Um, the, the treatment recommendations back then, um, they were saying somewhere between 50 and 100 mites was the treatment threshold, which is crazy to me. Like in 50 the whole to 100 hive? mites? No, per 100 bees. What? Yeah. Do you know how crazy <gasps> that is? Whoa. Like if you do a sugar shake and 50 mites fall out, and they're like, yeah, you should probably treat then. I would barf if that happened to one yeah. of my hives now. Yeah, I would as well. I would <gasps> as well. And the, the bees would die. Even if you treated them, there's no coming back from that oh, pretty much. Oh, wow. Um, well, now the treatment threshold is three mites per 100 bees, a 3% infestation in your colony is the point at which you should start treating because if you allow the population to get larger than that, uh, they will substantially damage your bees. And if you allow it to go farther than five mites per 100 bee, uh, even after you treat, there has always uh, already been so much uh, damage to your colony that you will start to see issues in that colony. Um, now, it's not necessarily past the point of no return, but it has substantially damaged your colony. 
Now, uh, the fact that there is such a dramatic difference in uh, about 30 years' time is remarkable. But us allowing these populations of mites to be rewarded by killing more and more colonies is what has allowed them to evolutionarily accumulate this set of very unnatural virulence genes um, that has led to them being the crazy creatures that they are now. So if we really want to help the situation, we need to do something to reduce the numbers of mites in this colony. Now, uh, in the in our colonies. Now, what I know is a very frequent response to that is, well, if we take care of this problem for the bees, the bees will never learn to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. We should try to promote resistance genes in our bees by allowing them to deal with the mites themselves. And the colonies that can't handle it will die and will breed from the stock um, that can. And that is an awesome idea. Uh, I love how it sounds, but in practice, it is very difficult. And it's very difficult because you have to be willing to let tons of colonies die. If you were looking for a set of genes that were fairly common in the population, you would not have to let quite so many colonies die. But because the set of genes that you're looking for is an uncommon set of genes to begin with, you have to let, uh, if you have a, a population of thousands, you have to let several hundred of them die. Maybe in uh, terms of like 970 something colonies die. And the few that you have left over might have enough resistance to do something with. And most people cannot deal uh, with that level of loss from their colony. Yeah. Now, the, if, if we think about this as an evolutionary arms race, it might help individuals understand why I'm making such a dramatic statement about this. Consider that the mites themselves, uh, so think of this like a fight, and every time um, the, the mites get to choose a weapon, the bees get to choose a weapon. And so if the mites choose this big, giant, blunt force object, and the bees choose a shield, then they can deal with that, uh, and that works out great, all right? But that's not actually how it ends up working, because the mites have a new population. Uh, they can have a new population uh, every month. The bees, not so much. Um, and so actually uh, multiple times a month um, and in some areas of the country, um, the mites can just continue reproducing all year round. Every time the mites reproduce, they have the genetic opportunity to select for different sets of genes that can allow for them to be better at exploiting the bees. Every time the bees reproduce, they have the opportunity to potentially select some set uh, of genetics that will allow them to be stronger against the mites. But if the bees, if the mites are reproducing uh, several times in a year, uh, a dozen times in a year, uh, and the bees are reproducing how many? Can once or it? twice. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, once in a, a blue moon, it seems, because <laughs> we don't want them to. Yeah. Uh, we don't want them to split. We don't want the colony to, to fly off with all of our honey to uh, a new place. Uh, and so a lot of beekeepers will artificially keep their bees from reproducing. And so under those circumstances, the bees have almost no chance of winning an evolutionary arms race mm -hmm. against these mites who are able to choose so many more weapons than the bees can choose in a regular amount of time. Dang. Mm-hmm. Don't just put the bees in your hive and walk right. away. You can't right. 
do that anymore. If you're going to choose to be a treatment-free beekeeper, you still have to manage and you still have to understand yes. what's happening in your hive. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And and treatment-free doesn't mean no intervention whatsoever. That's right. Um, I mean, you can be a treatment-free beekeeper and do drone culling. I've yep. met uh, I've met treatment-free beekeepers with really happy, healthy colonies that they've been able to keep going with uh, just non-chemical methods of mm -hmm. uh, intervening and, and doing something about the mite population. So. Well, I think also being willing to take the step to put a colony down when they've gotten to the point mm -hmm. where they are now at a risk to the colonies around them. Mm -hmm. <sighs> man, oh man. <laughs> it's rough, especially after you've named it. My dad's named all three of his, and yes. I am terrified oh of what's going to happen when he finally loses one. He's going to lose one one yeah. day. There's oh, yeah. no beekeeper in the world who hasn't lost the college. When we do our beginning beekeeping class for the Beekeeping Association, we always say, you're going to kill bees. Just mm -hmm. accept it. That's mm -hmm. part of it. Yep. Um, and yep. don't get caught up in squishing one bee or, you know, don't think of that. Think of the entire colony. <laughs> hmm. Um, so you mentioned Bee Informed Partnership. This year mm -hmm. I signed up to be one of their Sentinel apiaries. And <laughs> so I got my kit last month and <laughs> I, I was doing testing on my Sentinel colonies today before I, our conversation. And mm -hmm. um, I'm really excited to be participating in that. Although mm. I have to say the bottle and the funnel that came with it <laughs> are so small that it's really a struggle to get all the bees through it into the bottle. <laughs> Do you we know anyone there? I mean, can you like economical with can size? You, oh, come on, make it just a little bit oh. bigger. If you yeah. have a connection, just you know, if you could put in a good word for me. <laughs> I can definitely. I, I do have some connections there, okay. and I can pass that yeah, on. Yeah, totally. But uh, it felt it was kind of a proud moment to take my little uh, bip, central apiary tags, and staple them onto my hives. Yeah, I'm helping out here. I'm helping the greater good. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I saw that on your um on your Instagram. And I was like, yeah, you know, and I think that I'm only one of two or three other apiaries in the state of Oregon that's participating. Good gravy. I know, <laughs> I know. So if anybody's listening, you have a chance to participate. Spread the word. Spread the word. Yes. Take the surveys. Mm -hmm. Take all the surveys, <laughs> and if you can participate in something like this, do it. Because it's yeah. bad. Yeah. Absolutely. I tried writing a song about Feral Nights for us to sing today, but I really didn't get past the first line. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first line? It goes, <clears throat> I, I don't have the same pipes as you do. You're, you've, been, <laughs> you've been blessed with pipes, but it goes, Hey, Varroa, boo, 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 boo. I don't want to know ya. Boo, boo, boo. And then I get kind of stuck. <laughs> so, I don't know. Think about that. You might come up with some more oh, lines wow. and, you know, we'll do a, we'll do a duet someday. <laughs> oh, I love this. Oh, hey, Varroa. Boop, boop, boop. Uh, I want to know ya mm, 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 Because I want to show ya The end of my hive tool When I squish ya <laughs> do, 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Oh, that was beautiful We can't top that That, that was amazing um, 
I thank you from the bottom of my heart for our time today. It's been absolutely sure. a delight talking with you. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a delight talking with you as well, Mandy. Awesome. And I'm hoping that we'll get to meet at one of these cool meetings. Are you I going to Apomondia? would love that. I'm not coming to Apomondia. Um, okay. Not this year, but, but maybe maybe down the road. Okay. Yeah. Um, but one of these days. One of these One meetings, of these days. I... You have an open invitation to Portland, Oregon. Portland Urban Beekeepers, I can get you into any meeting you want. <laughs> Sweet. Okay. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Uh, I will keep you posted. <laughs> Thanks Talk so much. Later. All right. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye-bye. For highlights from today's interview, visit my blog at waggleworkspdx.com. For more bee adventures, you can also follow me on Instagram at beingmandy, and that's B with two E's, and at beekeeperconfidential. If you like what you're listening to and want to help support this podcast, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Mandy Shaw. Be sure to tune in next week for my mini episode for updates on what's going on with my bees. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Confidential is a Waggle Works production and is written and produced by Mandy Shaw.